Mark. This week, we watched the movie Roger Ebert called the best movie of the 90s and one of the best movies he has ever seen. Darn tootin'. <laughs> it took me a second. Movie Tales. I'll have what she's having. Hosted by Mark, Jeff, and Nick. Round up the usual suspect. Three lifelong friends who all dropped out of film school because they all figured out they loved watching movies more than making them. Are you not entertained? Gretchen, stop trying to make fetch happen. These cinephiles review and reveal widely unknown factoids, lore, myths, trivia, and cultural impact of the movie. Mostly funny. I'm your huckleberry. Sometimes serious. I'm gonna make them an awfully gun with you. Definitely interesting insight into the best movies we only thought we knew. He's looking at you, kid. What, what, what movie is that, Mark? Well, boys, we're going back to 1996, and we are watching the Coen Brothers classic Fargo. And for those of you, for those listening that do not remember Fargo... I'll refresh your memory with a very, very quick recap from good old John Reeves' contribution to IMDb. John simply said, Jerry Lundegaard's inept crime falls apart due to his and his henchmen's bungling and the persistent police work of the quite pregnant Marge Gunderson. And I just thought it was such a simple recap that I said, that's what we're going with this week, because... That's what the Coen brothers do so perfectly. They make simple stories, and they make them perfect. And this was one of them. So, I'm happy to be here, boys. What about you? No, this is fabulous. Yeah, so I'm really excited to be doing this one, too. All the way from Europe. Nick got up from his surgery. Dude had, dude is so dedicated to the pod, had surgery on his leg, and like, not even 24 hours ago. And he's uh, hyped up on pain pills and who knows what, and he's here to pod. <laughs> And he's yep. in Germany, folks. He's in Germany. Yeah. Keep that in mind. Eight so times got, away. So for those that are for those that are paying attention, somebody's in Vegas, somebody's in Germany, and somebody's in Seattle, and we're making this happen, Fargo, right now. So let's go. I love it. I love it. Moment in time. When did I see this? Okay, so I don't remember when I first saw this. I was thirteen when this movie came out, and I I didn't see it in the theater. And I think I got a copy of it when I worked at a video store in high school, and I probably stole it. But um, it wasn't until I was in college that I fell in love with the Coen brothers in general and really dove into their whole filmography, probably on recommendation from somebody or something in film school. And I've been a fan ever since, obviously. So, I, But I don't remember the first time I saw it. I think it's because I saw it probably on video, and I was too young to appreciate it. Like I said, I was only 13 when this came out. And and it's not your, I don't know, it's not your perfect movie for a 13-year-old, I don't think. But, <laughs> but maybe it's different. Maybe it spoke to one of you guys if you saw it in the theater. I don't know. Nico, did you see this movie when it came out? I, I, loved it. I did not. I remember it being all over the award circuit and not giving it any credit. And like you, I, I just caught it in college during my rewatch career when I had nothing to do. I didn't study. I just watched movies all through college. And I stumbled upon it, and I don't even think I fully appreciated it then. I I knew at that point it was a good movie, but I think the older I get and the more I rewatch this, I think I, I rewatched this about three years ago. I just love this movie. It's really but, good. It's really yeah. easy to love this movie as an adult. Yeah. I, it was such an easy rewatch, and yeah, I yeah, it was fun for me. But what about you, Jeff? Jeff, when did you see it? Was this your first time seeing it? This was my first time seeing it. Uh, <laughs> what? Until now. Um, oh my god! Yeah, I love it. It makes it sense been, though because of what we're saying. I was thir- we were thirteen. It had been on the we, list we, for we years. 14. Yeah, it had been on the list for years. I just had not gotten around to it. Um, was it, was super excited to finally see it and interesting. The first watched it twice. My first watch, I liked it, but I was kind of like, eh. I mean, what's kind of like? I had such high expectations. But then on the rewatch, I caught a bunch of stuff. It feels like one of those movies, um, actually similar to every Coen Brothers movie I've seen, that this movie gets better every time you rewatch it. It's so true. Uh, every think, original script they have, 
that's absolutely. a lot of a testament to their attention to detail. Uh, so it was interesting. I had a different. I'm really glad I watched it the second time because I was kind of about to came into this being like, I don't know what the big deal is. That's good. I'm I glad you watched it, it the second time. The second time. Um, can you can you tell us why you didn't like it on the first one? Well, no, he said it was just okay. It's not that he didn't, I didn't like dislike it. it. I, I didn't think dislike he it. I think I was it was too like, hyped eh. for him, and he was like, "What's the big deal?" The because, like I said, the Coen brothers are simple, yeah. but they just do simple really well. And I think I was expecting. So I've always heard known of it as as a uh, dark, uh, like thriller with uh, comedic element. Or you'd heard that, right? But I don't think I knew about the comedic elements as much. And I think I was expecting No Country for Old Men going into it and it was closer to uh big lebowski or um not not that much comedy but it was much more comedic than i realized it was so i think i was actually thrown off too by the uh tone of the film yeah and i think that's what made i think that's what made that movie special when it came out thinking about it now i and we were too young to know but if i would be guessing on this I think it was probably the comedic element combined with the dark of the story, like the darkness of the story. Yeah. And, and I think that that was probably a big like turn on for a lot of adults that were seeing it. And this was just before our time, based on our age, when it came out. You're... You're you know, you said this movie was simple, but I think it was actually phenomenal. I really think that this is probably the Coen Brothers' best movie. And I know I'm coming fresh off this. I watched this at 4 a.m., my time today, but I just think the seriousness of this movie that mixed with comedy that Han mentioned was, it was really, it kind of hits you both ways, you know, and that's so rare to pull off, and I think they pulled it off perfectly here. To think that this movie came out so long ago and it's still holding up today, especially drama-wise. You know, this is about a town in the middle of nowhere where we didn't even have cell phones back then, and this kidnapping could have been pulled off so much differently and to still watch and be enthralled I think is I think they pulled off an amazing feat here pulled off an amazing feat how oh well I think it's the drama portion when we get to the favorite scenes I think that they pulled me in like you said it's really funny but also gets very serious too and I wasn't there I wasn't downplaying the movie by saying it's simple it's just a simple story that's just a complete train wreck and, and when I talk about what worked for me, it's just the concept of the blundering idiot. Yeah. And what I mean by that, we watch this train wreck unfold in front of our eyes in slow motion, basically. And we're just cringing and shaking our head at Jerry every step of the way. And then yeah. Frances jumps in about half hour in and she steals every damn scene she's in. And with her crisp, you know, the dialogue and the accent and everything. And then to, you know, basically our cherry on the Sunday is Buscemi and his accomplice, this um, Peter Stormar, this Swedish guy, <laughs> who, I mean, I, I just had in my notes, these two are just the cherry on the Sunday, with, with just, uh, there's such a great layer to this train wreck of a story, because they're their own train wreck. It's not just Jerry. They're an absolute hot mess, too, these two idiots. And yeah. it's just great. It's these three idiots trying to pull off this plan. <laughs> and and we're gonna get into it in a little bit because as much of as much of an idiot as Jerry is, he's not he he he's not as dumb as we think. Even though I'm yeah. calling him an idiot. You, you know what I, I I love that we never knew what kind of financial troubles he was in. Jeff always talks about let less is more when it comes to horror, but like for this for the drama purposes, that really works. That we didn't know why he needed money so bad. As we do this podcast, I'm starting to think less is more just in general in film. Yeah. The more, yeah. like, uh, we all, um, one of the things we love about this movie is just how tight and how just, like, it. there's no more than what you need. And right. I think of our criticisms of a number of films, we, crit we rarely criticize a movie for less. Mm -hmm. We usually, our criticisms are overdone, too much of this, too much of that. Yeah. Um, Chris, Chris, what is this thing? Ninety-eight minutes. Yeah, I and mean, even like, the credits are short. I love a movie I, that has short credits. By the way, I love a movie under. I love a movie under two hours. Like <laughs> I really do love a movie those, that has short. Let's get credits. those things back. <laughs> I feel like the lighting. I, like I know the lighting guy is excited to see his name in you know the eight minutes of credits, but nobody else is. I don't need that. And then Marvel added this whole. I gotta sit through them all now. <laughs> I know that's the worst. I was, I actually don't through sit through the credits at the end. I'm fascinated that you did, unless it's a Marvel movie. <laughs> uh, 
because I we'll get into what didn't work. I have some credit stuff that didn't work later, but I think you know what it is. Um, yeah, who, yeah, yeah. Who's is it? My turn for what worked. Whose turn is it? Yeah, no, it's you. Let's put it. Let's put the cherry on the Sunday for what worked. Let's go. Uh, for me, uh, the satire and the screenplay. The main thing that works in this movie though is the screenplay. Uh, it's just perfectly constructed. Uh, like the Nick put it perfectly. There's nothing there that doesn't need to be, uh, and there's just the the Coen brothers' sense of morality. Uh, it's just brilliant. Literally every character gets kind of what they deserve. And just the way there's so much great structure in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jerry is, um, you mentioned the two, Steve Buscemi's character, the two kind of thieves. Mm-hmm. And then Jerry. Well, Steve Buscemi's character is actually basically the mirror. He's the same guy as Jerry. Just yeah. in kind of, just in kind of the criminal world. Uh, he, neither guy gets a lot of respect. Both of them are kind of bumbling idiots. The only difference between the two. That's a good one, isn't it? The only difference between the two is Jerry, when some when somebody blows him off, shrinks and kind of moves away. Whereas Steve Buscemi, when somebody blows him off, he confronts them. Right. And um, it kind of neither neither tactic really works for either character. Because their intent always comes from a place from ingenuineness, and uh, never comes from a place of, gen- of, in- of genuineness. On the side flips- note, side note. When speaking of Buscemi, it, that's what makes it so great when he gets his comeuppance and the the dude is, you know, whipping him with the belt. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. That's that's a great moment in this movie. <laughs> it's so dark, and you're just sitting there laughing. <laughs> Well, in Little, it's funny. He's always being beat. Littlefoot is very similar to his, uh, to um, Gunther or whoever, whoever his uh, silent partner is, because neither neither says a whole lot, uh-huh. but both um, <laughs> both are physical menacing presences. That's uh, a good point. Back, yeah. Back to the nice synergy in the screenplay. Uh, the other, the other, um, like, so Jerry's family is kind of the antithesis of Marge's family. You when you when you watch everybody that Jerry talks to, um, there's always a distance between them, and he never. Everything, every interaction he has with a family member, he's either scheming or he's trying to get something from that person or trying to get something for himself. Every action between Marge and Norm, is in genuine care of the other one. The best, one of the best examples when she wakes up early in the morning, Norm insists on getting up to make her eggs, and Marge isn't even surprised by this. Uh, furthermore, down the line, Marge, Marge stops and makes an extra stop to buy nightcrawlers for Norm. Uh, and um, it's even shown further in that scene when they're eating Arby's, that other cop comes in, Norm hardly even acknowledges that cop because he's so focused on March. And it just juxtaposes how close-knit that family is versus the other one. And uh, a lot of why Jerry never gets treated with any respect because he really is only ever out for anything for himself. And the Coen brothers do a lot with morality in all of their films, and I really think that's cool. That's a great point, Jeff. I like. Okay, all of so this is so this is an awesome moment because I love what you just said and I love what you just put out there. But that being said, I have a midnight pondering, and I got to get <laughs> into it now. Sorry, everybody. We usually get a little bit later for these, but this kept me up, and it needs to be discussed right here and now. Are Jerry and Marge more similar than we think? And did you see this online, Jeff? Uh, before I get into it. Uh-uh. So hear me out. I saw this and I was like, hmm. Marge and Jerry actually have identical personalities. When they're dealing with the general public anyway, that's perky in the face of extreme chaos, a perkiness that hides their own ruthlessness. 
Jerry comes across as a sweet, simple, naive, leave-it-to-beaver dad type, except when you realize he's a cold-blooded psychopath who's arranged for the kidnapping of his own wife and puts the events in motion that lead to four more brutal slayings. Marge comes across as a sweet, mild-mannered lady reporter type, a nice girl doing her job that just wants to be friends with everybody, until you realize she's a ruthlessly brilliant homicide detective who's stalking three murderers who brilliantly foils the criminals, tracks them all down, and ends up capturing and jailing two of the kingpins, all while she's acting like a sweet June Cleaver type. They both pretend to be gentle and unassuming when they are not, and in a way, the Coen brothers' commentary on Midwest culture and hypocrisy in general, they kind of, it's the vicious underside of the glossy American dream. And this person wrote all these notes about this. I disagree. It, I wholeheartedly, okay, tell me when you're done, because I wholeheartedly disagree, but I'll give you my rebuttal in a minute. Okay, that's fine. I was just asking. So, I mean, that's factual. Like, I didn't well, put anything, I like, everything that's just said is true. He's mistaking ruthlessness for competency. He's absolutely right in um, Marge being a competent cop. And yes, she has a profession where you have to be tough, but she could have been ruthless and shot the criminal that was running away in the back of the head. She actually spares his life and shoots him in the knee. She was, she's tested morally. Or she times. missed. Oh, she, that was like, that, she's a pop shot. She knew it. She, 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 yeah. she, we don't know she's a pop like, shot. If she was a pop like, shot, we saw the, if she's a pop shot, we would have saw the training scene early in the movie where she's like, you know, you know, can pinpoint accuracy. She didn't miss. So all I'm saying is the person that came up with this, they're making a good point. Marge and Jerry aren't Competence, as different as they seem. And ruthless, competency and ruthlessness aren't the same thing. Now, where that person does make a great point is about the whole Minnesota nice facade because both, uh, both, um, both people put out there and they're very polite. Yes, Marge is still going to do her job. She's going to do it politely. She's even polite with the person she arrests, but she's going to do her job. Jerry is only out ever looking for himself. Um, that's further exemplified when Marge is given the option for a uh, little fling when she's out of town, and she both treats she both treats the person, uh, the creepy guy hitting on her with kindness, but also never strays and goes and does the wrong thing. So, so you guys, so neither of you agree that the Coen Brothers like totally went like blue velvet on this and david no. lynch how he no. did 10 years ago even though the marge is the good guy i'm yeah. not saying marge is the bad guy i don't even know if either of you even listened to what i said then <laughs> <laughs> no i, I did I, I didn't agree with I, like i really don't I even like, understand if you're listening then i did like they the both no, no, they the both put was... off a public perception and they're both totally hiding how smart and different that they're what they're trying to put out there no, I don't agree that, with that. I feel like Marge is pretty wide open, and she's she's very no, intentional. She comes off all she does. She's not. She doesn't play her poker hand with Jerry They're at both all. Polite. They're right on the politeness, but she she pretty much telegraphs it that she's good at her job. She calls yeah. out the police. She calls. I mean, she literally calls out exactly what happens at the crime scene. In front we of knew all. that, I love, I love but that that's scene, to her Jeff. coworker. That that's, but that's I, yeah. to her coworker. That's not to Jerry. She uh, doesn't want Jerry to know how slick she is. It's made yeah, obvious it's a in game. those scenes. She's trying to catch. Well, yeah, I said, exactly. I said she's competent. That, yeah. That's the biggest difference between her and Jerry. Jerry's schemes don't work because he's incompetent. Yeah. <laughs> where her schemes work because he's competent. Jerry. Oh, also, Jerry's a train wreck. I agree with Jerry being a train wreck. I'm just saying like, this person said they have similar personalities. And, and I don't and, think Marge's intentions are selfish. I think doing her job. Yeah. I don't see how doing her job is selfish. I know. I, I totally agree with that. They only said similar personalities when when they're dealing with their general public perception. Okay, so yeah, there, I I do agree on the point about like the minis, the Midwestern, the polite Midwestern like niceties, and that absolutely I think the Coens are making a point there that like as competent and good as her job is, even Marge, even Marge caves to the. Like being overly nice to. I mean, literally, she doesn't even bolt. She's nice to freaking Littlefoot. Uh, like she's nice to. <laughs> yeah, everybody. yeah, she's nice and to everybody. Jerry, just... Jerry, who's a scumbag, he is actually nice to everybody, even though he's a scumbag. So I think that's a good point. I just disagreed with the point that they were similar in character, because one person always looks out for themselves, and the other person, I think, looks out. I think the other person generally looks out for other people. Yeah, I don't think they're exactly the same. Like, I don't think they're exactly the same in regards to, I mean, yeah, Jerry's an idiot, and she's not. So, like, <laughs> just flat and out in that regard. she's a good person, and Jerry's kind of a scumbag. Yeah, but it was just, I, I think, they, they were just making a point that the Coen brothers were, they were arguing that the Coen brothers were, were making that intentional with 
the two identical general public personalities. No, I think I, I agree with that. But I then it got me wondering, like I was, so that's why I was asking. That's why it was a midnight pondering, yeah. I suppose. Anyways, moving on. What was your favorite scene, Nico? God, there's there's three of my favorites. I think the okay. opening scene is the perfect opening scene. I mean, it pretty much explains this to us. It doesn't really give scene. us, yeah, in the bar. First meeting well, with Jerry, opening scene. I love it. Yeah, yeah. I got but, it in my uh, notes. Oh, really? And I love the scene where um, Jerry is practicing calling Wade and telling him what happened. Because he realizes this kidnapping just got real. And that's that's a very real moment, and I love that. But I think where they kill the cop and then they kill the um, the passerbyers, I think that's where we learn how real these guys really are. They're not just messing around. And we, yeah, we know they're bumbling idiots, but I think at this point... Yeah, but do we know? Well, I don't are. know if Buscemi knew that they were that real. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, I would argue that I don't know if we know that they were. That. I think that's when Buscemi said, "Uh oh, what did we get ourselves into? We had no intention of killing anybody." And um, Swedish gay—I uh, don't even know how to say his name—but uh, I mean, the, the quiet one, Gare, yeah, Gare, Gare Grims, Grimsrud. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, we never even we never even learned his name. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, it's a great scene. <laughs> What's your third one? Uh, the third one is um, the practice, the rehearsing, calling Wade. Oh yeah, yeah, the calling Wade. Yeah, yeah, calling Wade. Yeah, yeah. Jeff, what's your favorite scenes? All right, my favorite scene is my is also my favorite quote. Can I just do both together? Even though yeah, I guess is it going to be the Marge Gunderson quote? And I tell you what, from his footprint, he looks like a big fella. <laughs> no, it's not. Okay, good. It's uh, it's uh, Carl with the parking attendant. Oh uh, shit! My what scene? <laughs> My wife turns to me during that scene and says, "Oh my God, it's my husband." So, <laughs> the, when when he pulls up and he says, "I guess, I guess you think you're, you know, like an authority figure with that stupid fucking uniform, huh, buddy?" King clip on oh, tie there. That parking attendant, not Big the other parking attendant. There's two parking man, attendants. Huh? It's true. This one, you know, these are the limits of your life, man. The ruler of your little fucking gate here. I may or may not have said that to a few police officers in my life. Um, I, I do hate I do hate people in a uniform that think it gives them power more than so with that, probably in the world. I Jesus, you're just creating ponderings for me. So is that the reason the poor other parking attendant gets it? Because you know this other he parking attendant him. gave him so much grief earlier. <laughs> he in the tried movie? to charge him on the way out. He's no, like, it was I a dip. fucking four dollars already. <laughs> No, I know, but I'm no, I'm saying the new one. I think you're no, absolutely right. No, I know, right. I know. I'm cracking it. Yeah. I know, I know. <laughs> Here, sir. I, I've definite. I would def. If I were, if I were, if I were trying to pull through, and I decided I didn't want to park, and they did not give me my money back, I would definitely make a fucking scene. <laughs> like my wife's got me dead to rights on that one. That's I will awesome. probably die like Steve Buscemi, fighting over. Fighting over a stupid fucking four dollars. So that favorite scene just reminds you of your own life. It's not a particularly your favorite one in the movie. No, I loved it. I loved every minute of it. Watching him dress that guy down, I was like, I rewatched that thing four times. That's great. That's awesome. So, all right. The th- I, I love the first meeting with Jerry. Like Nico said, it, I mean, the opening scene's so good. But that's part. It reminded me so much of the opening scene of Reservoir Dogs, and that's just because Buscemi is just so good. But the the wood chipper scene, <laughs> the wood chipper scene is unreal. It, it, and I remember it, it was shocking. I remember I remember that was a shocking moment back when this movie came out. People were like, "Holy shit!" Like yeah. nobody knew. Like at no point do you even see this wood chipper, <laughs> and, yeah. and you and you just hear this noise in the background. So you have no clue that you're about to see this and then all of a sudden you just see all this blood on the snow which is just great right roger deakins awesome cinematography and then you you see you see you see a crazy guy with a with a leg trying to jam the leg down into the, to, to the, this is right after he just axed his partner to, to the wood chipper yeah for, for real right after he axed his partner right after his partner Finds like a million dollars and hides it on him in his <laughs> Like Buscemi's such a weasel. That's why it's great that he gets the axe from the dude. And when you yeah. think about it, it's really great. The way this everything everything's great. Everyone gets their Everybody come up. Everybody gets it's, what they deserve in this. Movie. For sure, it's so true. Except poor, 
Except Jerry's wife. She did not deserve to well, die. Well, all the Jerry's wife is... There's a, lot of, well, there's a lot of innocent people that don't get what they deserve. That's 100% like true. Like the parking attendants. A more immor- immorality, is, immorality is punished in the film. Um, yeah. The, and uh, then the only other scene I have that I really love that I just Oh, that parking attendant had it coming, Nico. You don't, char- <laughs> you don't charge a guy on the way. <laughs> there's a minimum of $4, hey, Jeff. Just, can I just put it out there that parking attendants might have a free time to listen to podcasts, and we could have somebody that's actually working in a garage listening to this. And maybe they'll learn. So, maybe they'll know that if somebody comes through and they just came through and didn't park, they'll be like, I should probably let them out. So maybe uh, I'm educating the world right now. Oh, uh, good stuff. I agree about uh, Carl. I mean, he literally he had $920,000 hidden in a suitcase, and he's fighting over a stupid car. A half of a <laughs> That's what I said. Car. He got what he deserved. He's so stupid, man. He's, he's well, so, he, des- he got what he deserved for a lot of reasons. He doesn't put... I never put plates... I never put the tax on cars. And it's so great that Carl gets shot in the face and just has to deal with it, and we yeah. get that... Who we, kidnaps it, it, somebody and doesn't put their tags on? I know. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> and what was he planning on this exchange? Was I mean, he didn't even have the wife with him. Like, what was he, he just going to collect oh. money and tell the guy to fuck off? Or what was I, that? Well, no, I think he was just going to go get the wife at some point. Well, I think he really had yeah. no trust in Jerry whatsoever. <laughs> I think he was going to say or tell Jerry that, hey, he was there. He was just trying to get his money. He was probably yeah. trying to stiff Jerry. Yeah, I think he wanted 80k. But but here's the thing. So here's an argument for Jerry again, who I just love. William H Macy. Did you hear about how he begged for this role? Yeah. It was, okay. It was good. Awesome. I'm glad you heard about that. All right. So I I just I absolutely love that we find out that he wants a million dollars and he's only gonna give these guys 40k. And, yeah. And so which we. So he's not as dumb as we think. He's going to try to pocket a million out of this deal. And he's trying to buy these buffoons off for 40 k That's why I think Buscemi and the, his other hoodlum, I, I don't think they're as great as... I, I think we give them too much credit. They're idiots, too. He was Whatever he was into, he was in pretty deep. I mean, because the business deal he brought to uh, Carl Wade. was for 700... To Wade was for 750K. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not like he was in, like, just... So, maybe 000. he just wanted the million because he was going to buy the, pay the 750 outright, right? Yeah, something like that. I mean, and that was his, that was going to be his ticket out, and so he didn't have to try to sell cars for Wade anymore and, and be on the hook for the extra coat of polish. Yeah, totally. I mean, there's all sorts of theories out there, and I love that we don't know the answer to it. That's what I. Really it is. Love. It's true. It is. I mean, we're we're really blown in, it with our pondering. We're pondering all over tonight. But well, yeah, I mean, that he was, was in desperate one of my situations. Ponders. No, here's the thing. Yeah. That is a cool, super cool Coen Brothers trait. Mm-hmm. In almost every single m- movie, there's some kind of money involved that everybody's chasing after, and almost in almost every single movie, the move the money like gets lost. Mm-hmm. Like if you think about Coen yep. Brother movies, it, old country. Oh, yeah, it, go ahead. Yeah, the money. Yeah, no country for yep. old men. The money, like the money, rarely gets found. Have you guys seen Fargo TV show? No, I was going to ask about it actually. Jeff, you? No. Nope. Just so you know, first season of Fargo TV show, we find out what happens to that money. Oh, okay. So if you want to go watch, <laughs> is it your... is it a show worth watching? Oh, it's phenomenal. Is it? Absolutely, especially yeah. if you're a Billy, Billy Bob, Bob. Thornton fan. Yeah. Billy Bob. They're not connected in any way other than that Easter egg, basically. Okay, interesting. <laughs> That's like the only Easter egg of the connection. But it's got the blessing and, of the Coen brothers. They actually really like it. Yeah, and the fact that it takes place in Minnesota. So, but that was another thing. I, 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 I always forget when I think of Fargo. I just think of Fargo, North Dakota, and completely always forget until I watch this movie. That it's all in Minnesota. The whole movie takes. Well, yeah. The only the only scene in Fargo, in actual Fargo, is in the first five minutes of the movie when they meet. They never re, and they named it Fargo because they said they they said they didn't think that B- Banyard would test very well. <laughs> I just thought that was awesome. I think that would be a great trivia question, though. What? What state does the movie Fargo take place in? Oh, yeah. And so everyone would be say, like, oh, Dakota. North Dakota. Right. <laughs> does the majority, you have to say like the majority of the movie. Cause I yeah. Guess. Um, all right, where are we? We're I've in quotes. Us. I've lost us. We're on quotes. Right. Oh, and I also just, I love Jerry and Marge at the car dealership. Did I talk about that? 
But yeah. When Jerry runs away. I just... Yeah, that's great. That really is a great scene. <laughs> there's like there's the Coen Brothers comedy within the dark <laughs> What does she say? He, he's hightailing the interview? Or he's hightailing the... Uh, yeah, I'm going to go do the inventory right now. <laughs> then she just... She realizes he's driving out. <laughs> and, and we get the payoff at the end when he's trying... To... Like the hotel manager gives and opens the door, and he's trying to weasel out the bathroom window. It's so pathetic. I, you know, a side note. I always said I've said this for over a decade. I've always said that nobody plays pathetic better than Steve, um, better than William H Macy and it's amazing. Philip Seymour Hoffman. Those are the two guys that play it better than anybody. I mean, they they, they, literally, they made a name in, for themselves in Hollywood doing this. Absolutely, and, and they play it both simultaneously great in Boogie Nights. Yeah. <laughs> I totally forgot about it. That's a nice little jam, but nobody did it better than those two guys did. I'm with you. I can I can drink that Kool-Aid. Favorite quotes, Marge Gunderson. I'm going to jump right in. I love her quote at the end when she basically sums it up and she goes, So, that was Mrs. Lundegaard on the floor in there, and I guess that was your accomplice in the wood chipper, and those three people in Brainerd, and for what? For a little bit of money? There's more to life than a little money, you know. Don't you know that? And here you are, and it's a beautiful day. Well, I just don't understand it. <laughs> it's good. It's really good. It, I just love her. I, it, it's. We'll get into her Oscar win in a little bit, but I. That's why she wins an Oscar. She's just so lovable. Yeah. You know who kills it in this movie? Um, underrated, like every uh, person under- kills it, but every person, person does kill true. it. Uh, but Harv Harv Pristnell. Wade is so awesome Wade. in this scene. Oh, Wade. he is great. Wade's a, Wade's, a, Wade's a hidden gem for sure. I, I I have a Wade quote. I have a Wade quote for you. I'm glad that you have a Wade quote, and I'm glad that you haven't seen this a bunch of times and you love Wade. That's pretty cool. And uh, Jerry sits down and says, uh, "This could work out real good for me, for me and Gene and Scotty." And Wade says, "Gene and Scotty never have to worry." <laughs> It was good. It's the way he said it too. You know, he's uh, like, like they're you're expendable. He barely basically. acknowledges any of his. My favorite is uh, just in town and just in town on business, just in and out. Ha! Just a little of the old in and out, which is actually a Stanley Kubrick reference to Clockwork Orange. Ah, do you know about that? Do you know about yeah. the Collins and the Kubricks? There, there's a few references in this one. Oh right? yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll sure. let you get to it. You betcha. You betcha. You betcha. <laughs> What didn't work, kids? Bell! 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 What didn't work for me? Really nothing. So I, I, I hope you guys don't have the too much that doesn't work. I don't have anything. I, I, I just put in my notes, it's arguably a perfect movie. I, got one I, I think it's arguably a perfect movie, too. Go ahead, Jeff. Not, it's a very minor complaint, but 90s opening credits. <laughs> I gotta watch that fucking car for like three minutes before this damn movie gets started. <laughs> and we thank, get it at the end, kind of, with all the sirens. Thank God. But it's they started. Cars. They started starting movies with action in the two thousands. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I I lose interest in half these movies before they ever get started. That's I think awesome. this one shocks you right up right up front. That's a that's a minor a minor, a minor. little nitpick. I minor. get it. I hate 90. I mention it every every week in this pod. I think I just hate 90s credit scenes. That's <laughs> funny. Uh, I think Rick, it, go ahead. Nick. Go, I don't like that they killed Genie. I think it, it was unfair. It, it just showed how ruthless they were and bad at business, right? They had one. But it's deal. not. It, well, here's the thing. I don't think Carl was ruthless at all. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't think Buscemi is ruthless at all. I don't think he wanted to kill Wade. I think right. he was just forced into it because. <laughs> I mean. He doesn't. He tried not to be ruthless. He tried. Yeah, to, exactly. Tried That's to my drive, point. And then I love that I mean, scene where he has that fifty dollar bill to the cop. Yeah, exactly. And when he killed, when the cop gets killed, Buscemi is now he's I'll completely stunned. He's in. He's yeah, he's, he's shocked. stunned. And he's like, "Fuck, I'm into it." Blood was spilled. Wait, blood yeah. was spilled, Jerry. Blood was spilled. That's right. <laughs> I want I want the full eighty k now and Jerry and here's the best part Jerry like tries to argue and and that's when we find out like I think that's when we find out that he's now getting a million that's and Jerry's so, still arguing like about giving the full eighty k that's why it's so crazy that's why those two parallel each other so beautifully because the same way that uh, like Carl literally decides to die on a hill for four dollars in parking 
Jerry is dying on that 40,000, even though he has an extra million. Like 960K, yeah. It's like both of them are so similar that they. Oh, for like, sure. Or, or just even at the, like right there, sure. even in the end when Carl gets himself killed, that he squabbles over not the 40K, he squabbles <laughs> over the fucking car. The worthless car. Like the Sierra. They had blood all over it. Yeah, the cops blood all over it. Who wants this? Why? Why would you want but, that? The the car to the crime scene of the crime. Um, perfect. One thing. To, one thing too. I will say that I didn't like. I didn't like the whole subplot with meeting up with uh, Mike Yanagita and him lying about his wife dying and all that. But the more I realized that, I realized that Francis McDormand Margie was just. Um, she was. A very empathetic character as you talked about she was a sweetie and this was her i think we get the path at the end where she doesn't let that sweetness get in the way of laying down the law right if that makes right. sense well and that this was it was almost her moral test again this the movie the cohen this whole movie is about moral choices uh-huh. and like um literally i mean even wade dies because he refuses to like give up his million going easily right. for his daughter or whatever. Like, right. and, and I think that show just exemplified, she's given a moral choice uh-huh. and she shuts it down right away. Yeah, right. no. And I think that's good, it, but I think Nico's kind of right too. It, in, it's weird. It comes and, and, from exactly. No, it comes and I think that's classic. Nowhere. I think that's classic Cohen's Cohen yeah. brothers. I feel like almost all their films have something weird in discomfort, them discomfort. Yeah, and just just kind of something out there where you're like, huh? Where you kind of well, just do a little. Which head one's tilt. married to Which one's married to Francis McDormand? Is it Joel? Joel, Ethan? Joel Cohen. So maybe oh, Joel. I didn't know that. Maybe that. You was didn't know they were married? No, I did not know that. They've been married wow. forever too. I think they maybe got married a, either. They married after or Raising Arizona. They met on the set of Raising Arizona. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And got married. Yeah. Um, that's why. That's why I think it's hilarious. Joel's reaction to her howling at the moon <laughs> at the Oscars yeah, was fucking yeah. funny. Yeah, he looked at her like I don't know that woman, which is hilarious because <laughs> and they've been, the Ethan brothers are kind of weirdos. That are the Ethan, the Cohen brothers are kind of weirdos themselves. Oh, definitely. for sure, for sure, for sure. Um, no, I, what I was gonna say was maybe like maybe that was a true story that happened to Francis with an old high school buddy, and they just they, they're like, we've got to film that scene, and that was their best chance to get it in. Yeah. Well, at first I thought it didn't work, but then I realized it did work. So I really have very little complaints with this. I think that's this this the beauty. I don't either. These guys know what they're doing. I only had one thing written down, 90s credits. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't have anything. I literally wrote down, I'm pretty sure, perfect movie. Wow. Career corner, Mark. So, yeah, jumping back to our Coen brothers, right? So, Joel, basically Joel goes, jumps on the scene. He goes to New York, uh, goes to NYU, he becomes a production assistant. He's doing some music video stuff in the early 80s. And then he finds a talent for film editing. And he meets Sam Raimi. And they become lifelong friends. And he assists Sam Raimi in editing Raimi's first feature film, The Evil Dead. And that's where the start of the Coen brothers came. So in 84, the brothers, they wrote and directed Blood Simple. That was their first commercial film together. And the movie, it takes place in Texas, if you've never seen it. Uh, tells the tale of the shifty, sleazy bar owner who hires a private detective to kill his wife and her lover. And they're just simple crime stories, A lot, so many of their movies. And that's what they're very famous for. There's nothing, you know, um, what's the word they use from film school jeff misen son right i always mise en scene. yeah mise en scene. yeah they're just they're the pro they're pros at it and, yeah. and they they just they just they're really good at picture an onion of a picture a simple story but being an onion and you just have all these layers yep and and and, and that's why it's so fun to rewatch their movies and i know i speak for all of us that we all love the big lebowski and absolutely Every time you watch The Big Lebowski, you, it's just so magical. It's, a, yep. it's just a magical film. And Fargo's in that same vein. And so is No Country for Old Men. And we'll get into it here in a second, I think. But I just recently rewatched No Country for Old Men again. And that movie's so damn good. It is. It, it's <laughs> it's so damn good. So, uh, but anyways, and then they kind of just, they hit it off with uh, Nick Cage and Holly Hunter raising Arizona. They then they do um, a couple movies, Miller's Crossing and Barton Fink that we talked about, and 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 then they came. They really made it big with Fargo, 
So Fargo's where everybody was like, oh, who are these guys? This was like their first movie like with super critical and commercial success, I guess. Box office mm-hmm. success. Uh, I feel like everybody... And did you see that they lucked out a little bit? So Yeah, they basic... did. Go, jump right in, yeah. Basically, um, originally they were going to make Big Lebowski first. Yep. But um, Jeff Bridges was filming something else at the time and scheduling didn't work out and they they absolutely wanted him for the role mm-hmm. so they good choice they actually did fargo great choice they actually they actually did fargo um first and then fargo ended up being a big commercial hit yeah had um big lebowski a lot of people don't know this it was a box office bomb oh bomb it, bomb. it only later became kind of a cult following hit movie Huge so cult classic. If Big Lebowski was done before Fargo, they might have been done in Hollywood because it would have been their fourth straight box office bomb. Yeah, and they yeah. might have uh, never got Fargo made. It's true, right. and, and what's a shame the, the the sad part about that being their fourth straight box office bomb. Miller's Crossing and Barton Fink are good movies, and the Hudsucker Proxy. Yeah, that's not that good. But I mean, you're not, you know, nobody's perfect. But yeah, then they did Fargo, Big Lebowski, and Oh Brother, back to back to back. And uh, then No Country for Old Men, they go, they go and win Best Picture. They sweep the Oscars, basically, with that movie in 07. And which is, which is like a decade later, right? I mean, they're, they've had yeah, a long, yeah, yeah. So from they 84 kind of, to 2008. No, so eight, yeah, so like they have a huge run from eighty four to ninety or to two thousand. Eighty four to two thousand, they hit. I mean, it's not a huge run, but it's just eight solid films basically. And then they kind of did some silly comedies in there: Intolerable Cruelty, Lady Killers, and people were kind of like, eh, they didn't love it. But then they hit a home run with No Country for Old Men, and people were like, yeah, that was good. And then True Grit again, but that we just haven't seen much of them in a while, but. And I didn't even see their last movie, Ballad of Buster Scruggs, on Netflix. Did either of you see it? No. Yep. I've never seen it either. But but how about the career corner of some of these actors that were, just came on the scene, right? Oh, came well, famous with this movie. Well, Frances McDormand was married to Joel Cohen, so that, but I don't think any of us knew her before this movie. No. She wins, uh-huh. wins her first of three Oscars in this film. Yeah. And, and her first of three Oscars, and she wins Best Actress. Let's talk about that for a second. Is this her best so performance she, of those three? No. Oh. It might okay. be my favorite performance, not her best okay. performance. Why is it not her best performance? I, you know, I, after rewatching this movie and thinking about our podcast, I determined that not all Oscars are created equal. <laughs> so she's only in this movie for about 26 minutes of screen time. Sure. And she wins a Best Actress Oscar. William H. Macy gets nominated for Best Supporting Actor, and he dominates this movie in screen time. It's so interesting that he was nominated. Well, that's, I mean, And this has been a complaint in Hollywood forever, is that the studio just puts up if they're up for Best Supporting or Best Actor. Yeah. And it's ridiculous that he's listed as Supporting and she's listed as Actress. Uh-huh. The two for should sure. literally be flipped. And for it was sure. really dumb on that. I don't know who won Best Actor that year. But he, so, he was not going to um, beat Cuba Gooding in the Best Supporting Actor category, so that was kind of a... Best Actor was Jeffrey Rush that year for Shine. Uh, he plays a deaf music. I've never seen Shine. Yeah, it, yeah, William H. Macy me. wasn't beating him, was he? <laughs> uh, <clears throat> no. And Billy Bob Slingblade was that year. Woody Harrelson, people Jerry Bruce McGuire, Lee Flint, Tom, Tom Cruise, Tom Jerry Bruce Maguire. Yeah. yeah. Shit. But none of them won either. Tough category. But yeah, uh, you could uh, Fargo definitely should have won Best Picture over The English Patient. That's yeah. for sure. <laughs> would you pick it over Jerry Maguire though? I would. I think so. Ooh. I'd pick Jerry Maguire. I I would, but I don't think Fargo's a better movie for me. It's not my. Uh, well, hold on. Let me rephrase that. I think Fargo's a better. I think Fargo's a better movie, but Jerry Maguire's m- more of a favorite movie for me. If okay. that makes sense. I think it this totally movie made. Steve Buscemi and William H. Macy, big stars after this, you know, like we already talked about. So I think kind of that's a tough one. Yeah. I so, mean, this put them on the scene. Everyone knows who they are. Get, we might never get some big time cable uh, prestige television without it. Because with uh, Buscemi and Boardwalk and um, William H. Macy and... The Showtime Show. What is that? Know, yeah, I can't think of the name of it right now. <laughs> I can't think of it. It's been on TV for like 10 years, though. 
Mark Shameless. Wasn't. Yeah, Shameless. Yeah. Great show. Frank Gallagher. Frank Gallagher. Frank Gallagher. Uh, Frank Gallagher right, is amazing. I ask you a question. Since you career corner, you career cornered the Cohen, Cohen brothers. I love this question because I love putting you on the spot because Mark hates the question too. All right, my bunker question. You're going into a bunker. Cohen brothers. How many directors did they beat out? Ooh. Tony Scott. Tony Scott of the Cohen brothers, Mark. You can take all of the DVDs of the, any movie they ever made, but nobody else. Do you want Cohen Brothers movies or do you want Tony Scott movies? I'm taking Tony Scott because I get true romance. <laughs> Ridley Scott? No, 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 no. I rephrase. No, no. I'm taking Cohen Brothers. Because yeah, Big Lebowski. Big Lebowski is a top five movie of mine. It is, but yeah. does it outrate getting Top Gun and True Romance? Yeah, it does. Okay. I because I I get Fargo and No Country, you get, you also and get no I get Country. Barton Fink and Miller's Crossing. So yeah, I'm okay with it. Spielberg, Spielberg or Cohen Brothers. I'll take Ooh. Spielberg. Yeah. <laughs> Love me some Jaws. <laughs> Love me some Indiana Jones. James Cameron or... Uh, oh, that's easy for Nick. <laughs> you Never do that winning for me. Yeah, yeah come on. James Cameron yeah. I mean, or... What, you, what about you, Mark? James Cameron or uh, the Coen I'll take James Cameron. Come on, man. I mean, okay. it's, but, I mean, the Coen brothers... The Coen brothers are not... I mean, they're really good at storytelling. We talked about this pre-pod, but I, I, I'm not a huge Coen brothers fan, but I think the three movies they did do well, they did perfectly. As you as you said in your notes, the perfect movie. Which three I movies? Think no Country for Old Men. Uh, no Country for Old Men, The Big Lebowski, and Fargo. Rank yeah. Em. Yeah. Ooh, in, in rank them. In that order. Yeah. No, I'm gonna say The Big Lebowski, probably number one. Uh, Fargo number two, and No Country for Old Men number three. Even though that's wow. the only one to win Best Picture. Yeah, I go Big Lebowski one, True Grit two, No Country for mm. Old Men three. I fucking love True yeah. Grit. That's a yeah. fucking great movie. Ooh. Big Lebowski, No Country for Old Men, Fargo, wow. Miller's Crossing. <laughs> Had to throw in that Miller's Crossing, didn't you? And you're going to watch it someday, hopefully yeah. on your flight home from Europe. Like You'll follow through on your homework assignment there. True Grit's like the best Western I've seen. True Grit's ever. great. Don't I fucking wrong. love that movie. I know a yeah, lot of people don't. I don't, or they don't. They don't love it. Everybody likes it. I think it's because like... it's a remake, but... Yeah, I, I thought that movie was fucking. Fantastic. Well, here's the thing: if I'm in the mood for a western, that's not what I'm going to. So that's probably why for me. So I, um, it's just I, I'm a weirdo. I like that movie. All I right, metal, it. metal podium. Yeah, you really think? Hold on, can we go back to you thinking that Steve Buscemi was put on the map from Fargo? Yeah, I know he was in Billy Madison. I saw that, but well, no, I, he's got a tiny role in that. But let's not forget Reservoir Dogs came out in 1992. Here, ooh, I did not know that. And, and Reservoir Dogs. It, and Buscemi's amazing in, in Reservoir Dogs. So, I mean, he dominates the opening scene. It's one of the most famous scenes in the movie where he talks about Like a Virgin with Madonna and he talks about mm-hmm. not wanting to give a dollar tip because the waitress <laughs> doesn't earn it because it didn't get enough refills Mr. on his White. coffee. I love that. Yeah. I love that he's, scene. Well, he's about Mr. As well Pink. As I love he talks about why he's got to be Mr. I love Mr. that scene Pink. about as well as I love the parking lot scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you probably love his tip comment. That's, I fucking but, love it. It's. <laughs> So yeah, Buscemi's been around the block for a while too, but I mean, he started acting in 85, but he, this is definitely a huge memorable role for him, for sure. And But he was also in the Miller's Crossing and Barton Fink. He, the Coen mm. brothers had been using, uh, had mm. used had used Buscemi long before. They're like, Fargo. they just had him on speed dial for acting. Yeah, like, yeah he's called Buscemi. Yeah, he's their guy. Yeah, he's yeah, their guy. Buscemi, exactly. And then he, when he got his role on Sopranos, he was so good in Sopranos, he got a whole show banked up, bankrolled out of it. They're like, let's make a gangster show and give him right. a role. And then he got to be the star of Boardwalk Empire, which I is never awesome. saw it. Is it? It's is great. It? Oh my god! Well, I mean, I like that genre, so mm-hmm. I'm a sucker for that genre. I love that show. We'll, we'll give us your medals, you love it, Jeff. That's... Yeah, yeah, I fucking love Boardwalk Empire. What was that, Nico? I said, give us your medals. I'm curious where he falls in this. If he gets, oh, one. if who gets one? Yeah, if. Buscemi gets one. Go, Mark. He's oh, poor, the... poor Steve. You know what I like to do, right? So Steve is right there as my honorable mention because I gave Frances McDormand a bronze medal because she steals every scene. Ooh. But I gave William H. Macy the silver medal because, God, he's so amazing as the world's most bumbling idiot. And he's really good. And I, I don't know if you guys... I don't know if he made your podium or not, but the Coen brothers took my gold because they wrote the damn movie. They got... They got they got the Oscar for writing this movie, and they deserved it. And so, where are you guys at? Where are your medals? Nick, I got. You got? I got Coen Brothers bronze. I think they pulled off something incredible here, and they deserve gold. But this, there's just so many good performances here. Yeah, you can't go wrong. Like if yeah. you get Buscemi a medal, you're not going wrong. Even yeah, I, I guess I'll Swedish... get both. 
Even if you get the Silent Sweden medal, I'm okay. Carl with Hungus. Yeah. Um, I would. He's also the Coen Brothers boy, right? He's on Speed Dial. Oh like, yeah. Oh yeah. He's definitely. Yeah. And you. And are, I, can we just talk about the guilty pleasure that Armageddon kind of is for me, and the fact that both of these idiots are in are on that meteor that they yeah. put up in Armageddon? Yeah. It's true. I, I, it, that's a great guilty pleasure. That movie. It, that movie is so stupid, but it is so wad rewatchable. I can watch that dumbass movie any fucking day of the week. I'm not gonna lie. I'm glad you feel the it's same. A way it's, it's a little too long. It's a little too long. Oh, it is a little too long. But it is, it's, it's a little too long, and it's a little too silly. It, oh, it's way too cheesy, but it's, it, but for some reason it's watchable. It's Give me Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck arguing the, on a meteor. It's just right. the idea that they're gonna take oil riggers and or turn an asteroid get, turn into astronauts. I, I've never been able to get over that. <laughs> I think I respect astronauts too much, and I probably am harsh, harsh and I don't know. But okay, so Silver, Steve Buscemi, Gold, William H. Macy. I, I really think he... Oh, I'm he, so happy that Lundegaard got your gold. Yeah, I think I think the scene oh. where he's practicing calling Wade to tell him what happened is what nailed it. I think oh. that was... That was the scene that... that Darn tootin'. Darn tootin', William H. Acey got your gold medal. He's I just love so, it. But this was the beginning of him. I don't know if he was anything before. This is the first time I ever saw him, so... I think he's he did so an incredible good. job, and he, he's so good. he played that same role over and over again in his career afterwards. So he's a gold medal worthy. Jeff, what do you got? Yeah, uh, same as Mark actually. Frances McDormand, the bronze. She's amazing in every scene she's in. Um, but I really feel like William H Macy drives this movie. He's the silver. He just mm-hmm. like he's fantastic in this film, and he just drives mm-hmm. the action. But at the end of the day, this is a Coen Brothers movie. Uh, everything. There's very little ad libs in their movie. Uh, it's it's interesting that li- all the little character moments, even things like Norn putting his hand over Francis McDormand, uh, are written into the script. Their attention, yeah. everything, their all attention of William H detail, Macy's like stutterings, yes, yeah. is, is insane. They edit their they they edit their own movies. They actually edit them under a. Yeah, surname, surname. Yeah, because surname. they think I it's weird the to name. have their names all over the movie. But they produce, screenwrite, dir- and direct and edit their films. They are true auteurs, and oh yeah, I did not know that. To give them the gold medal. Yeah, that's how. I mean, like I said, jo- Joel Cohen got into the biz with Sam Raimi uh, on editing, so yeah. that that was his big break. I mean, and shit. I have they, a midnight if pondering they started, about. If they started that acting, they could just do the whole thing the fucking selves. Like, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I like that job. I like it, right? Yeah. One man band. So William H. Macy started acting in 1964. It must have been some kid role. But then he started acting all throughout the 80s in like a bunch of TV stuff. So yeah. This is the beginning of his career. This is definitely the beginning of his film career for sure. He has a ton of TV credits, and God knows if the, he had a, any type of recurring role, but this was definitely the beginning of his film career. And then he still didn't, right? Like, he had a bunch of small roles after that, like his small role in Boogie Nights. He was in Air Force One. So he's never had, between this and Shameless, those are probably his two biggest home runs, I think. Yeah, for sure. Just looking at his career, anyways, let's not waste everybody's time. Anywho. Uh, where are we at? Midnight Ponderings. It's that time. I know we've covered a bunch. <laughs> what already, time is it, baby? Yeah. But, but we've, we've got a bunch. Jeff, before you jump right before you jump right in, let me just get this one out of the way because I just I've mentioned his name. So, Sam Raimi. Have you guys seen the movie A Simple Plan? Yep. Love that movie. Okay. I love that movie, too. So, A Simple Plan comes out a few years after Fargo. Uh, I think two years after Fargo, to be exact. It came out in 98. Gosh, and now seeing that Joel Cohen and Sam Raimi are such good friends, I almost wonder if Sam made this movie because of how great Fargo was. And A Simple Plan is based off of other material, but I just feel like these movies have... You saw that he gave them their start, right? Sam Raimi. They'd be a... Yeah, yeah, that's what I said. Yeah, in Evil Dead. That's what I I was talking about. So, I was just... It makes me wonder... attention on this podcast. (laughs) Yeah. It's okay, it's late, and Nick's in Europe, we're all over the place tonight, it's alright. But I was just um, I, I was just curious if that movie ever gets made without Fargo. Because I feel like they're very similar movies, they'd be a great double feature. Interesting. It, yeah. Because right, it's just such a train Raimi's wreck movie? of like that's, money, that's, just right, the whole exactly. money and the train wreck, but like the, bum, played, like the whole bumbling idiot concept. It's played a little yeah. more straight though. 
but still, yeah. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's less funny, more drama, but I, that's what I know Sam Raimi from. So, I mean, I think that definitely... Played. Did he do anything after that? Spider-Man. Yeah, he did all the Spider-Man. Yeah, oh, he wow. did the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movie. So it was the, really the beginning of his directing career. So, I mean, it's well, quite he did possible. Evil Dead and Army of yeah, Darkness. Evil and, did, right. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, he's very cult following because of It's funny, evil I didn't even know he made a simple plan, but I, I knew about his other stuff. I love simple yeah. plan. Simple right. Plan's really good. I think we st- we learned about it in screenwriting class, I think, Jeff, mm-hmm. in college. I, mean, I think we studied we it. I think I, so. I saw it when it was in theaters. Like, I fucking loved that movie. I think we studied it. I saw it in the theaters, too. Screenwriting class. All right. Yeah. Um, ponderings. Yeah. Is that, did you do your pondering? Yeah, I, I was just did. curious if you guys... Okay. What happens to Scotty? Does he make the hockey team? <laughs> That kept you up past midnight. <laughs> Scotty, you were worried about Scotty. Yeah, that's like yeah, being yes, worried I'm about worried. Walt, yes, Walter I'm, White's kid. Yes, I'm worried about Scotty. Fucking his dad's in jail. His mom's dead. His grandpa's dead. His grandpa gave away all of his inheritance. <laughs> <laughs> Scotty screwed. His grandpa has a ton of money left. If he was willing to give away a million, Scotty. He's a million dollars in the '80s is a lot of money, right? I mean, that's I like, like two and a half million today. I don't know that he yeah, had a whole. I don't know that he if had he that has, much left. if he's willing to give away a million dollars, I swear he's da- calling the authorities. It's his daughter. No, but <laughs> I swear he's calling the authorities, or he's just got, right. a, or he's got a hundred million dollars, and he's like, whatever, it's yeah. a million dollars. I don't know, but okay. <laughs> what um, what else kept you up? What? Why does? Uh, why does the silent Swede? Uh, why does he shoot the patrolman but run from Margie? Because <laughs> <laughs> he didn't have a gun. Yeah, okay. and she was armed. And he didn't have his axe. All he had was his, he was his street clipper. Fair. Fair. How similar is William H. Macy in real life to Jerry? Lundergaard. Remember, he and his wife, Felicity Huffman, were arrested in the Varsity Blues scandal. Yeah. I wonder if he was making very similar phone calls that Jerry Lundergaard made. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's pretty good. But, well, he plays Frank Gallagher pretty good, and Frank Gallagher is pretty smart about, you know... Schemes. Putting one over on people. <laughs> well, <laughs> it didn't work out for a lot of people in Hollywood this time. Great. By the way, if you guys have not seen the documentary, Varsity Blues. On is, Netflix, I've wanted to see it. It is so good. So good. Yeah. Shout out to that. Not seen it. I've only and Operation seen the, Varsity Blues is what they called the sting, right? Yep. Yep. I've it's, only seen the great. Vanderbeek starring Varsity Blues. Which is also right. great in its own right. That's all I got for ponderings. Things Nico, any ponderings? Oh, no, yeah. no ponderings. I Nothing kept you one, up this, in Europe? No, I think that... Well, this movie kept me up, obviously, because I watched it at 4 a.m., but afterwards, I just thought, what a brilliant movie. You know, nothing was untied, shoelace-wise. I thought they Nico, you got some stuff we missed? Because I've got a couple things we missed. Yeah, you go first. Three weeks into shooting, Joel and Ethan Cohen revealed to their cast and crew that this was not, in fact, based on a true story. <laughs> I yeah, I can't believe we haven't even touched on that. That was funny. I, I don't uh, have a problem with that, by the way. Yeah, I think it's no, and that was cool. It's hilarious. And I it's love, the joke on the audience. It is a joke, and at the very end of the credits, they reveal that it was not true. Oh, that I didn't know. I did see that, though. Yes. There's a little footnote in their end credits that none of the, none of the events in this movie actually happened. However, they have that line where they say, however, everything that transpires is exactly how it happened. Right. And half these people are dead. That's an impossible promise to make. <laughs> well, I've read that the Coen brothers added that disclaimer to make audiences suspend, dis- suspend belief, basically to go along with the story and not question and was, anything. I thought that was well, kind and they of also, they were fucking with the audience. Like it was kind of an inside joke where like, because what they were basically saying was so many movies take so many liberties and people uh-huh. will take things like um, gospel and they were kind of like saying this is kind of silly to take all this as gospel. So that all being said, although the film's plot is not based on a true story, the plot element of disposing of a body by a wood chipper was... <laughs> And it was inspired by a true life murder in Connecticut, you guys. There, there's a lot where, of there's uh, actually, yeah. Keep going, sorry. No, but this is where they got this is where they found their story. This is where they got it. so this guy this guy Richard Kraft killed his wife in 1986, and he disposed of her body using the wood chipper, but there was enough tissue remained to identify her as the victim. 
he was sentenced to 50 years, which was shortened for good behavior, and he was set to be released from prison last June. And it, uh, I have no idea if that, if in fact that happened, but yeah, that meaning if he got released. But <laughs> the, there's it's actually like, a number of um, the true. Oh stories yeah, it's happened a bunch the, for sure. No, I said there's a number of true stories in the film. Um, they say oh, the one, they say the one that's actually the most true is in many uh, Minneapolis. There was a sales manager of a car dealership that was arrested for the. Uh, What's the thing he's in trouble for? Oh, yeah, that scene. He plays that scene out entirely true. The yeah, siding, the car dealership scene. The siding on the car. or the, the ex- That was almost like the verbatim sealant. dialogue. The sealant. I guess the sealant. I guess that there literally a guy went to jail for, like, overcharging for sealant or whatever in Minneapolis. And they said, Oh, that, that part. Was... I thought you were talking about the car sales scene. No, where the sealant. He's talking to the family, and the family is like, you, you know, like, you told me this much over the phone, right. blah, blah, blah. Like, like that was like a verbatim. Well, the reason he charged, but the reason he charged him extra was he charged him for the sealant that they never said yes to, and that literally there's a car dealer that went to jail in Minnesota because he basically tagged on car sealant to everybody's bills, and car bills are so much money that nobody even noticed they were being charged for the sealant until they went until he went to jail. I thought that was that's how my manager at Blockbuster Video got fired. Wow, did they carry him out in handcuffs? He, he was charging late fees, and he would add on Blockbuster Rewards memberships to people's late fees by charging their credit card. Wow. that's. And then he got bonuses for having such high uh, Blockbuster Rewards memberships. That's really scummy. <laughs> and people had no idea because you it, oh because there was just their late fees getting charged. And what's 10 and more dollars? You have no clue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Frances McDormand really wanted a role at this time in her career as a killer or a prostitute. Oh, yeah, uh, I saw that. And, I saw that. But she settled um, on a on playing a pregnant cop. <laughs> she realized it was one of the best gifts she's ever been given. Yeah. Yep. yep. And then I saw that the actors used a book called How to Talk Minnesotan to help them with their accents. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have a few here. I, go ahead. Keep going, Nick. No, no I have William H. Macy. He did. He, he hunted down the Coen brothers for the role of Jerry Lungard. He actually got on a plane, and he threatened to kill their dogs if they didn't cast him. I mean, this is obviously a huge break, but I think that adds a lot to the story. I'm really... Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. he was joking, of course, but yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, yeah, he was dogs. totally joking. I'll yeah. shoot your dogs. <laughs> yeah. Um, the writers and producers of The Simpsons have said or joked that if there was ever a live semic version of Ned Flanders, it would definitely have to be casted by William H. Macy. I thought that That's was hilarious. That's pretty good. That's yeah, pretty yeah. good. He, that, wow. In... In real life, it's all because of the line "darn tootin'." That's that's <laughs> Ned Flanders going, you know, "Hey diddly do" or what? He what is, hey, Ned, diddly is Ned Flanders. That's amazing. Yeah, he is Ned Flanders. That is that's the greatest part. <laughs> In real life, there is no Paul Bunyan statue that welcomes you to Brainerd. I thought that was hilarious. It's such I a big part of the movie. <laughs> oh my God! Speaking of hilarious, did you see that the woodchepper is on display at the Fargo Moorhead Visitor that. Center? Yeah. <laughs> did you see there's a Fargo? Did you see there's a Fargo film festival because of this movie? And they open they open the film festival. They open the film festival every year with the screening of this movie, and then it's become oh, wow. part of the film festival circuit. Yeah, I have uh, Peter Peter Stormer has played a German in Big Lebowski, a Frenchman in Chocolat, three Russians in Bad Boys Two, Armageddon, and Command and Conquer, an Italian in Prison Break, and the Swede in Minority Report. In here, he's played every diverse range. Of and you to can... top it off, Peter Stormer later formed a band called Blonde from Fargo as yeah. an homage to his breakthrough American role in Fargo. Was this his breakthrough American role? That's amazing. That's what he calls it. He calls it that. That's why he named the band Blonde from Fargo because That's he's hilarious. this blonde guy in Fargo. Yeah. Um, so I have two. Uh, Francis McDormand is ranked as the number 33 in AFI Hero List and number 27 on Premier Magazine's Greatest movie characters of all time. I thought that was pretty incredible. That, and that's, that that's a feat right there. The Writers Guild of America considers this the 32nd greatest screenplay of all time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's on the top 100 films of AFI. It's, it's Mark, on the top 250. Did you see about the weather? That this was the <laughs> warmest? So a lot of the snow in the movie is fake snow because they happened to film it in the warmest winter in 100 years in Minnesota. And like, <laughs> oh yeah, and Roger Deakins hated any time that they got sunlight. He hated having to shoot in sunlight. So funny, it would never be a he problem was, usually. He was so mad anytime it was sunny. 
Because so, I think there's only one scene with sunlight, and it was all intentional on Roger Deakins' part. So they had to shoot it. Or he had to shoot it really interesting. Um, oh, I have that. Here's in the note. While first screening the film, Siskel leaned over to fellow critic and co-host Roger Ebert and said with a smile, this is why we love the movies. Oh, that's great. We can end on that. That's fantastic. I love that. Mm-hmm. Final thoughts, Jeffrey? First time seeing it. Yeah, good movie. I, like I said, I liked it better. I'm glad I, re- <laughs> glad I rewatched it the second time. That was... It felt and eh, the first time, but it grew on me a lot. It'll probably grow, it'll probably grow over time, like the rest of the uh, Cohen Brothers mm. films. I'm glad it grew on you, Nico. I, I think this was just more reassurance. That the '90s was a great decade of movies. We could do a. We always say that we could do a whole decade on '90s movies, and I think just being reminded this wouldn't even have been on my list a week ago. But now I'm like, holy shit, this is great. Oh yeah, you yeah, know? because it was before our time. Yeah, and it was the beginning of, of a lot of great careers. Uh, obviously, Frances McDormand, who just won her third Oscar. That's why I chose this movie, by the way. And I That's think why I put this it on one the list too was the same reason, Nick. Same reason. Yeah, and look at look at her now. Like, how many, however many years later, that like she's what she's done with her career, and what the Coen yeah. brothers have done with their career, what everybody's done. I just think it's a memorable movie that needs to be remembered. This is I'm my so second glad. favorite Frances McDormand role. Yeah, and I she... love her as the mom in Almost Famous. Yeah, right. Did oh she my get my nominated fa- for that? That's my favorite Frances McDormand performance. Yeah. I'm so I just think. I hope that if anything, this podcast will make people go rewatch it and realize everything we just realized over the last hour. Absolutely, absolutely. And I I just have in my notes that Coen Brother movies are really fun to rewatch. And if you haven't seen their movies, go watch them because I think you'll like more of them than you won't. So, thanks uh, for listening, everybody. On behalf of Nick and Jeff and myself, uh, appreciate you tuning in to another edition of Movie Tales, and we'll see you again soon.